All right, let's bow together in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us your word and giving us the opportunity to know you through your word. Thank you for all that you do for us and especially for the salvation that you provide through your son's death on Calvary's cross and our putting our faith in that. Not ourselves, not religion, but in Jesus alone. Thank you for so great a salvation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we look at this section of Scripture uh, from chapter 16, verse 16, through the end of the chapter, verse 40, uh, the key thing I want you to remember is this. The key thought, the key teaching that Luke is trying to communicate to us in this section of Scripture is that the gospel triumphs. The gospel triumphs triumphs and in particular in our section this morning in verses 16 to 18 we see how the gospel triumphs over satan and the demonic the gospel triumphs over satan and the demonic and then following that next week we'll look at how the gospel triumphs over suffering and pain and opposition as Paul and Silas are arrested, we'll see at the end of our passage this morning, and treated uh, very badly. So that's, that's what uh, Luke is trying to communicate to us, is that the gospel triumphs, and it triumphs over satanic opposition, and it triumphs in spite of suffering and pain. All right, verse 16 of chapter 16. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. Now, remember the place of prayer was outside the city by the river. That's where the, uh, Paul encountered uh, these, these uh, small number of Jews uh, out of which was, uh, the church was born as Lydia becomes the first person to respond to the gospel in Europe. And so, apparently, they continued to meet outside the city. They continued to meet at this place of prayer as the church gained more and more adherence. Well, once the, uh, Luke continues the story for us, once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. Now, literally in Greek, that is a spirit, a python. Literally, it's a spirit. She had a spirit, a python. The idea is this. She was inspired, as they understood it in that day, she was inspired by Apollo, the false god Apollo, with the ability to predict the future. The ability to predict the future. As one writer put it, the meaning was a demon-possessed person who served as the mouthpiece of the python. Uh, Apollo was said to be embodied in a python, and Apollo was the god, little g, let's keep be clear on that, little g god of oracles, or the god who predicted things about the future. And so uh, the, what it's saying about this girl is that she was a demon-possessed person who served as the mouthpiece of the python. Another writer said this, she was inspired by Apollo, the god, little g, of oracles, who was worshipped at Delhi as a god embodied in a python. 
So that's what we mean by a python spirit. Somebody who predicted the future. And in this case, we find out that this girl was demon-possessed. Was demon-possessed. As we read through here, we see that clearly, that she was demon-possessed. 1 Corinthians 10 and 20, and, and uh, there's so many cross-references here this morning that I'd love to take time with you for, but I don't have that time. So please, if you could look these up on your own, do a little study on your own. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 20 warns of how demons take advantage of people who worship false gods. Even today, we're not just talking about in the first century, we're talking about even today that demons will take advantage of people who worship false gods. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 20 tells us about that. Now, because of what we're studying in this particular passage and the fact that this woman, this demon-possessed slave girl, was able to predict the future, and I'll, I'll talk about how that might be in just a second, but she was able to predict the future, uh, that, that should be a warning to us. I have been amazed over some 38 years of ministry about how many Christians I encounter who've either been to fortune tellers, people that uh, just blows me away. I remember years ago, somebody came to me and said, yeah, we went to a fortune teller years ago. This person was a leader in our church, and not this church. This was in Arkansas. This was in Arkansas. But they visited a fortune teller. I'm, I'm amazed at how many Christians are tied to their horoscope, this astrological signs, things like that. Uh, those things are not harmless. They are not harmless. They, they appear to be when, when there used to be newspapers, uh, how many of you here remember newspapers? <laughs> uh, when there used to be newspapers, every day would have a horoscope. And there were a lot of people, Christians included, who wouldn't go into the day. They wouldn't read the Word of God, but they wouldn't go into the day without reading their horoscope. I hope you're not among them. It's dangerous, it's real. Behind things like that are often demons. And we'll talk about what the Bible says about demons in, in just a moment. But we, we need to be careful. Uh, and, and we'll say more about that in a little bit. How did these spirits predict the future? How did these spirits predict the future? Spirits are not omniscient. That is, they do not have all knowledge. Only God is omniscient. God is omnipresent. That is, He's everywhere at every time. God is omniscient. He is all-knowing. But these demons, Satan, they're not omnipresent and they're not omniscient. So how, how are they able to predict the future? Well, there's a couple of things. Number one, they have had all of human history to study us. They have had all of human history to study us. Not just to study us, to study us generically as, as humanity, but they have had all of uh, our lives to study our individual responses. Our individual responses in every situation. They are great students of us. They are better students of us than we are of them. They are better students of us than we are of them. 
And so they, they have a sense of what we'll do given any situation. And they know what they'll do. So they've had all of history, all of human history to study humanity, all of our personal history to study us. They, number two, know what they'll do. Number three, by virtue of their vast numbers, and they have an intricate network throughout all of the world, they are able, even though they are not omnipresent, they are able to communicate very quickly across large spaces of time and space. So uh, that's one, one way. I, let me take a, a few minutes. I don't have enough time to do all I'd like to do uh, about, about Satan, about uh, demons, but let me just do a little bit with the time we have. Uh, C.S. Lewis said, I think something that was uh, very astute. Of course, he never says anything that's not astute, right? Uh, he, he often says things I don't have a clue about what they mean. Uh, I used to, I haven't, I'm not using it this year, but I, I've used in the past a devotional book made of excerpts from his books. And every day there'd be an excerpt from one of his books. When I can understand them, I love them. They are amazing, the things he has to say. Too many times I can't even understand him. But he said this, and this is really understandable, so we don't, we're not going to have to struggle over this. He said in the screw tape letters, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors. In other words, there are a lot of people who just disbelieve. I, I can't even believe uh, you're, you're talking, you know, we're in the 21st century. Don't tell me you believe in, in demons. Yes, I do. Because the Bible teaches they're real. And of course I do. So I'd say mostly unbelievers would fall into the category of denying they even exist. Unfortunately, I think it's believers who fall into the category of excessive and, un, and unhealthy interest in them. There are a lot of believers who see a demon under every rock. A lot of demons who, I mean a lot of Christians who uh, because of their own actions cause themselves great difficulty who are quick to blame it on some demon when they should be looking at themselves. So um, uh, at any rate, uh, there are those two, two extremes. Now what, what do we know about the identification of demons? Demons are fallen angels who join Satan in his rebellion against God. Demons are fallen angels who join Satan in his rebellion against God. As another writer said, these fallen angels possess great intelligence and power and occupy various ranks. They serve their evil master by upholding his authority in the world and promoting his wicked designs. Now, what are their characteristics? They are, number one, spirit beings. They are spirit beings. They don't have a body. They're not corporeal. They're spirit beings. Uh, number two, as we've said a moment ago, they're not omnipresent. They can only be one place at a time. However, they have a vast network so they can communicate, communicate quickly over long distances. Uh, number three, the third thing of characteristic we know about them, they're not omniscient. Uh, they have high intelligence and they have a long existence and they have an intimate experience with human beings in every possible circumstance which helps them 
to predict what we might do in any given situation. Uh, their activities, I'm just going to name them. We don't have time to really go into this. They promote a system of doctrine. That's in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. They promote a system of doctrine. They do that generally through false teachers. They'll promote a system of doctrine. The key to that system that they promote is salvation by works. They promote a doctrine, a system of doctrine built around the idea that you can save yourself by your good works. Uh, they promote destruction. They seek to destroy the bodies of, of uh, men, the minds of men and women, of course. Uh, they promote moral impurity. Um, Chris mentioned the uh, book of Revelation in our worship this morning. Revelation chapter 9, verse 11 tells us that they will physically torment people during the tribulation. They will physically torment people during the, revel the, revel uh, during the tribulation. And the third thing, the third activity is they promote delusion among the nations. That's Daniel chapter 10, verse 13, and 10, verse 20. Revelation 16, 13 through 14, 16. They promote delusion upon the nations. So that's, that's a, a, just a, a quick uh, taste of what the Bible teaches about demons and the reality of demons. Verse 17, we read, This girl followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. Now, I want you to understand, in Greek, it's an imperfect tense. And what that means is she didn't just do this once. She didn't just shout it once. These members are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. It wasn't like that. It wasn't that she whispered it. She shouted it. She screamed it. And she did it. The imperfect tense in Greek means continuous action in past time. She was over and over and over and over. Everywhere Paul and Silas went, everywhere Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke went, she was screaming. She was screaming. But you can imagine the upset that would cause, how difficult it would be to share the gospel in that situation. So we read that the girl followed Paul, the rest of us, shouting, these men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. By the way, was she saying, telling the truth? Yeah. yeah, she was. She was. You see, Satan will use the truth if it's useful to him. But the trouble with Satan is, one moment he'll tell the truth, the next moment it's a lie. And we're left to decide. Or maybe we wouldn't even know that he's lying to us. Because he said something true. Yeah, what, what she's saying is true. But in saying it, she's drawing attention to herself. Not to Paul, not to Silas, not to the gospel. She's drawing attention to herself because she's screaming. Day after day, moment after moment. Keeping them from sharing. Well, she followed Paul. By the way, I, I didn't read a part of verse 
15, she, uh, excuse me, not 15, but uh, verse 16, she earned a great deal of money for her owners. That's important to what happens later. She earned a great deal of money to her owners. They didn't care about her. They didn't care about her being demon-possessed. In fact, they used that for their own benefit and for their own profit. Well, verse 18, she kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so troubled that he turned around and said to the Spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. Please notice, no ceremony, just a command. Nothing like the caricatures that we see in the movies of exorcism, which is, which is so far out it's unbelievable. Paul just simply addressed the demon and commanded that he leave. What was going on here? Paul didn't want this sort of approval. He didn't want God's name or God's gospel promoted in this way by one who represents Satan. He did not want that association. One writer said Paul did not want either the gospel or the name of God to be be promoted by one of Satan's slaves. So he cast out the demon. After all, Satan may speak the truth one minute and the next minute tell a lie and the unsaved would not know the difference. And I would venture to say sometimes the saved don't know the difference. If you're not familiar with the Word or spending time in the Word of God, you can be deceived. You and I can be deceived as believers as much as unbelievers can be deceived by Satan. Another writer said this, the tortured girl told the truth, but when the devil tells the truth, the effect is always confusion. Always confusion. Now let me, let me add to our warning earlier about not getting involved with the occult, not getting involved with Ouija boards and, and astrology and fortune telling and all of those things. Let me add to that warning this. If you seek revelation from any other source other than the written word of God, can I say that again? If you seek any revelation from any other source other than the written word of God, you are opening yourself up to satanic deception. I don't want you to miss my point. If you seek revelation from any other source other than the written word of God, you open yourself up to deception by Satan. It's serious, folks. It's serious. Paul didn't want the slave girl's endorsement of his ministry because it's likely her next utterance would be Satan's lie and he didn't want to give credence to her utterances. And so he put a stop to it. He put a stop to it. Well, at that moment the Spirit left her, verse 19, when the owners of the slave girl realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. 
Please note what their real problem is. What's their real problem? Money. Loss of income. That's their real problem. Now, when you read the next verse or so, you're going to say, oh, well, they were worried about proselytizing Jews. They were worried about... No. They were worried about money. Money. There's only two times in the book of Acts where we see the gospel led to unbelievers losing money. This is one of them. Anybody know the second one? The book of, it's the, excuse me, the book of Acts chapter 19, the church at Ephesus. The church at Ephesus. That's right. That's right. That's the second time. That's the two times in the book of Acts where the gospel led to loss of money and trouble for the apostles. Now, I want you to notice something here. I surely do not have time to get into this, and so probably I should keep my mouth shut. <laughs> but I want to leave a thought with you here as we get near our conclusion. Uh, my extra 15 minutes that Steve talked about, <laughs> which I don't have this morning. Um, do you notice that it is unbelievers who are boycotting, not Christians in these passages? The, Paul, and, and, and we're going to see this when we get to chapter 19, but Paul didn't call for a boycott of the owners of the slave girl. And he didn't need to. Why didn't he need to? Because he preached the gospel. And when you preach the gospel and people's lives are saved, they change. And society changes. We have it all backwards. We form a boycott and we become just another silly pressure group in America. Well, scratch silly. You and I have a powerful weapon, a powerful tool, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is a powerful tool. But we prefer to join in economic boycotts. Now, don't get me wrong, there are places I won't shop, but not because I'm joining any boycott. In fact, I don't listen to a lot of boycotts, but I, there are places I won't shop because I know of things they've done, and I think that's, that's what every believer should be doing, looking at that individually. But when we become lemmings and we're just listening to somebody on the radio, some voice that tells us, you ought to boycott such and such, I wish they'd say you ought to share the gospel with those people that you want to boycott. Because the gospel can change people. Well, you see, Paul did not set out to harm their pocketbooks. That was totally incidental to his primary goal and his primary passion, which was preaching the gospel. Preaching the gospel. Well, let me try to bring this to a close here. When the owners of the slave girl realized the hope was making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, dragged them into the marketplace to face the authority. They brought them before the magistrates. They were two of the four uh, uh, leaders in officers in, um, in a Roman colony. They were called praetors. 
and uh, these and their their charges. These men are Jews and throwing their the city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept. You see, in a Roman colony, you could you could pursue your own faith, your own religion, but you could not proselytize a Roman. And so that's the charge that they're making here. They're proselytizing Romans. And uh, that's the charge against them. But see, more importantly, do you notice that they are clear to say these men are Jews? In the first century, there was an incipient, incipient uh, uh, pro, uh, excuse me, prejudice, uh, an, an anti-Semitism beginning against Jews. And uh, there's so much we could say about that, uh, the danger of prejudice when, when we reduce some person to one character or two, char uh, two characteristics of their lives and we reduce them to that characteristic. That is such a dangerous thing and you and I ought not to be involved in that. God's no respecter of persons, and you and I need to be no respecter of persons. Well, so they made this charge. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas. The magistrates ordered them stripped and beaten. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. So what did they do next? You'll have to come back next week. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your power over obstacles to the gospel. Thank you for your power over Satan and his minions. Help us to trust you. Help us, Lord, to treat others as you do without respect of persons. Help us, Lord, to seek your truth alone. In Jesus' name, amen.